You think artists, by definition, are not critical thinkers. They're the opposite of what they think they are. They think they are breaking molds and they think they are pushing boundaries, but I think that they are followers in every sense. That is so sad. It is slash feels true now. <laughs> but I'm not, what I'm not granting them is this intellectual seriousness with which they approach their own work constantly. I think their work does not reflect it at all. Just remember, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. In the culture war, there are no winners, just podcasters. Only a few are willing to risk their lives in the face of some of the dumbest ideas to have ever captured human civilization. Every week, we, Megan Daum and Sarah Hader, humbly accept this mission in order to bring you conversations that are equal parts stunning, brave, and unhinged. Welcome to a special place in hell. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Megan. Did you survive the 4th of July? I did. I had a good little break with potty training. How did, uh, how did your potty training go? Um, you know, every day's potty training day for me. It's practice. I see it as a practice. Mm -hmm. You know, it's ongoing. Mm -hmm. It's a process. Yeah. I never do anything. I have no life. So it was just more of the same. I know. I mean, it's the same with me. People, you know, I was getting my like eyebrows done and the woman was like, so what were you up to this week? And I'm like, I had nothing. There's nothing. I'm never up to anything. I didn't go anywhere. But you actually have way more of a life than I do. You have like- Lately, I feel like I have no life. You go, you, you have lunches and brunches and dinners and I don't have any of these things. Uh, I hate lunch for the most part, you know? Why? I mean, I, I will, I, recently I had lunch with, with some people I was excited to have lunch with, but for the most part, it's no, it's like a big giant cob salad blocking the day. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. It just ruins the whole day. You can't do anything. Yeah, I agree. Lunch, lunch is terrible. Breakfast is fine. I'm a fan of a breakfast meeting. Yeah. I just, I think they should just be drinks and like, it should be after like late afternoon to evening. I, I prefer that's the time to meet mm -hmm. friends and even business associates, really. I feel like. Oh, I'm just... talking about business. I'm not talking about friends. Oh, I would oh, never okay. have lunch with a friend. Oh, God. People have lunch with no. friends. I, don't I think mean, unless they're in from out of town or something like that. And that's the only time they can meet. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. But no, lunch is like for business. Yeah. But they're even, you know, it's either too long or too short. Two hours long. Yeah. It's too long. But that's, you kind of need to meet for two hours for business. Yeah. And then you have to drive. So, and here, by the time you are finished with lunch, you've hit rush hour. Yeah, traffic. it's terrible. So then it's the entire day. Doesn't work. Yeah. No. Um, uh, all right. So no lunch for us. Did you go to any beaches? Did you uh, go to any nude beaches? Oh, no. Um, what a great transition. To, well, here, here's the Thank thing. Thank you. Um, I just read this piece and I sent it to you because I thought maybe we, we might want to discuss it, but it is ridiculous. And there's really nothing to talk about. It was a piece on The Advocate by, by Neil Braverman. And the headline, I'm just going to read the headline. Gay nude resort must allow women, judge declares. And that's the that's the, the long and the short of it. Uh, a clothing optional. I can't believe this hasn't come up until now. I mean, we think from the very beginning that women would be demanding to get in. Clothing optional, Florida resort. Catering to gay and bisexual men must open all areas to women, according to a ruling from a judge on the Florida Commission on Human Relations. Um, the decision, which overruled a previous ruling saying the resort did not discriminate, um, affects this gay resort. And the challenge was by a woman, 38-year-old cisgender woman, Amita Chowdhury, who identifies as part of the LGBTQ community. But it's not clear from this 
uh, from this article anyway, whether she's gay or what, um, it doesn't make sense. She's uh, Indian, sounds she's, like. She's Indian, she's- which is odd i mean what do you make of that is that is this good representation everything about this is is odd 38 indian woman i mean that's an odd age to be doing something like this don't you think like you should be an well, adult maybe by she's now. not hot enough now that we've established last week that 38 is totally over the hill she has no choice but to go to gay men's nude beaches so she's not the object of the male gaze in the way she would be at a regular nude beach why would you want to be i don't even understand why there's so there's no it's not clear she feels why she, safe she probably feels safe around gay men uh-huh she probably feels that she can be herself and they're not ob- objectifying her right in so, fact they're just uh, totally uninterested slash repulsed not at all well disgusted yeah well yeah is she gonna be naked mm, it's, it's clothing optional so maybe she just wants to go and look at them oh yeah you wonder too with the clothing optional beaches like how many people don't take the option mm. yeah and that would be cre- that would be a little weird you would be like well why are you yeah that's like going to a dog us? park without a dog yeah it's creepy is that creepy? That's not creepy. Maybe you're just going to a dog park without a dog. Really? I've actually heard of people being kicked out of dog parks if they haven't, if they don't have a dog. If they don't have dogs. Why? Well, yeah, I mean, it's like if somebody went to a playground and was sitting there and they didn't have kids. You can't just enjoy it. No one's going to rape your dog. No one's going to molest your little pooch. I don't think they're going to do that. You don't know what people are like. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, don't be naive. Maybe you I should mean, keep would you... your dog on a leash. Um, maybe it's asking for it. Have you thought about that? No, it's a park. It's in the park. It's supposed to be running around. A lot of dogs get trafficked in parks and okay. dog parks. There's yeah. just people just roaming the perimeter. They say like, that dog was pretty hot. Mm-hmm. A dog is young mm-hmm. and hot and it doesn't know, doesn't see what's coming. Its owner is very naive. She's looking at her phone. She's just scrolling. She's not paying any attention. I'm going to go right in and take that dog and I'm going to make it like a prostitute dog. A dog sex slave or, a, or, yeah. or harvest yeah. its organs. That happens. Uh, we're going to talk about that maybe. I mean, to children, but. <laughs> yeah, I know. Maybe to dogs. Maybe that's a new. Um... Maybe so. I don't want to joke about this too much because dogs do get kidnapped and for dog fighting. Do purposes. they? They do they? Really? Oh, for dog fighting. Yeah, no, it's really terrible. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to joke about this. Your dog is not. That's not going to happen to your dog though, because. Well, but some some people are really stupid and they kidnap uh, non-fighting dogs. It's terrible. Actually, I don't. I don't want to think about okay, it. Okay. This is not. Right. This is not funny. But it would. It is funny. Yeah, to go to a nude beach. Uh, to insist on going uh, to a gay nude beach and not wearing any clothes. Nude Wearing clothes, yeah. looking at everybody else. I don't know, but anyway, all right. But it's equal. We had we had equality. They, they it was ruled in her favor. Mm-hmm. So um, okay. justice served. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Okay. It's just it sucks that I I don't see any comments on this website on the advocate because I would just love to know what gay men think of this. <laughs> what the average gay mm-hmm. man thinks of this. Well, maybe we have a lot of gay men listeners. So yeah. Maybe so they tell can... us. They can weigh in. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, so we've got a number of items to discuss this week. Uh, first, we're going to talk about uh, activism and little girls. We're going to talk about little girls not getting kidnapped at the park, but being kidnapped in t- for activist purposes. Uh, and then we're going to h- touch on a lighter topic and, and it's partially going to involve revisiting the unfuckable hate nerds discussion from last week, which people had a lot to say about. Mm -hmm. And I've had more thoughts about since. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And then we're going to do some bonus about uh, a very angry ballet dancer. Mm. Yes. That's my, I'm looking forward to that piece because it's so odd. What an odd, it's a confused person. It's the sequel to the very hungry caterpillar. 
the very angry ballet dancer. Yeah, it's a very very confused person. I don't think I don't think this person knows what they want. But it, yeah, we'll we'll discuss that in the bonus. Yeah. All right. Well, so yeah, there was a piece in the Atlantic actually last month uh, by the author of a new book um, about how girls sparked America's revolutions. It's called Young and Restless, The Girls Who Sparked America's Revolutions by Maddie Kahn. And we're not going to talk about the the book or even this article too much, but she does talk about how there is this legacy of young girls being very easily embraced as symbols of activism and of revolutions. I mean, obviously it starts with Joan of Arc, but it's just, you know, we see it in Greta Thunberg. We saw it in, she talks about uh, Lucretia Mott, there's a, it's just, there's, there's a whole bunch of these figures. And so, you know, you, you were a little girl in activism, Sarah. I was a little baby and I was, yeah. in, I was not yet potty trained. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah. She did. Does she talk about <laughs> why it's girls in the article? Well, she, I mean, I think a lot of it is that they're not, it, it's, it's harder. They're sort of more unassailable. Mm. Like if an adult is an activist, they're going to come across. No, I meant like versus boys. Mm. Oh, well, boys don't care about anything. Okay. Or maybe they're just not as pure. They're not seen as, as pure as as a girl. Do you think that's that might be true? I mean, I don't... I'm thinking about some, like a lot of the Parkland shooter kids. That guy, is it David Hogue, David Hogg, whatever mm-hmm. his name is, mm-hmm. has been really outspoken. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I think there's just something, the, the sort of innocence and the way they can kind of cloak. There, there's a sort of valence of victimhood and vulnerability mm-hmm. in the young girl. Mm. Revolutionary. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, there's something about it that I just find so distasteful. I I find all these young child activists for any reason, even the school shooting, honestly, like I just I think that this is something activism is something that makes some sense for some adults. But the younger they get and, uh, you know, and, and the younger they are when they're thrust into this spotlight, the more queasy I feel about the whole thing, because it's hard not to get the sense that there's a little bit of an there's some exploitation going on and they're too young to recognize it and maybe too, you know, starry eyed and truly in love with this cause that they're that they're moving or trying to move forward, that they don't recognize how they might be exploited by various groups and agencies and media, you know, media coverage. It just makes me feel really disgusted by the whole thing. Greta Thunberg might have been the activist in recent years who I've been most queasy about. And it's not because her tone or anything bothers me. I think her speeches are fine. They're good and even uh, uh, engaging entertaining yeah. right that's fine it's just that she is such a she's she's a person in a very unique situation she's very young she has a very odd family background and you know a little bit about this because you read a book on her family yeah i just want to be clear in the atlantic piece uh it wasn't lucretia mott who was the center the focus of this discussion it was somebody named anna elizabeth dickinson who was the daughter of quaker abolitionists and she stood up and made a speech in a town hall and all the men, the man that she was debating fled the hall and it was her just sort of energy as a young girl that was able to take on the, the adult men. So the idea is that somehow children and especially girls have some kind of magical powers that allow them to be more effective activists. Yeah. So Greta Thunberg, uh, interesting figure. The family published 
uh, a family memoir in 2018. It was called Our House is on Fire, Scenes from a Family and a Planet in Crisis. So the phrase Our House is on Fire is like the calling card of Greta Thunberg. It's also the name of a children's picture book. It's what she said famously when she got up and made her speech. She was nominated for a Nobel Prize. She was Time Magazine's Person of the Year, et cetera, et cetera. And so in 2020, the English version of the, the English translation of Our House is on Fire was, was published in the US. It was originally only published in Sweden. And the byline is shared by the whole family, but the story is told mostly from the point of view of the mother, uh, Malena Ernman. And she was like pretty famous opera singer mm. in uh, Sweden. Mm. And let's just say that she opens the book with this dramatic recollection of fainting backstage before a performance um, at a Stockholm theater. And, you know, she goes on to describe how this exhaustion is due to chaos at home. And it's all because her 11-year-old daughter, Greta, was disappearing into some kind of darkness, as she says. So Greta's like crying around the clock and eventually refusing to talk or eat. And the triggering event for this crisis of Greta's was watching a film in school about pollution in the oceans, mm. about, about trash in the oceans. And so Milena describes Greta like crying throughout the film and she couldn't shake off her emotions after it ended. And then she goes like into the cafeteria after watching the film and she cannot eat the hamburger that's being served for lunch. And so let me just, I will just read a tiny bit as uh, how Milena describes um, Greta's interior experience. The noise is almost ear splitting and suddenly that greasy chunk of meat on the plate is no longer a piece of food. It's a ground up muscle from a living being with feelings, awareness, and a soul. The trash island has imprinted herself on her retinas. The trash now, island? Well, the, uh, from the film that they were watching okay. about trash in the ocean. Okay. So talk about a mother speaking for her daughter. Right. Does your mother, can your mother read your mind like that? No, it's amazing. What a great, I mean, they must be so close. So the thing with Greta that fascinates me is that the interest in the climate came about because she got her mind just hooked on this idea. Like, you know, shortly after watching this film in school, she goes into this big depression. She stops eating. She mostly refuses to speak. She loses more than 20 pounds in two months. She's nearly hospitalized. She starts to make a recovery, but like, you know, it's this incredible sort of combination of Asperger's. She gets diagnosed with Asperger's finally, this autism, OCD and selective mutism. So she's like not speaking a lot of the time. And she like becomes obsessed with the climate. She tries to get her family to go vegan. She makes her mother stop flying. And according to the mother, this of course makes it impossible for the mother to work because she's a famous opera singer and she's always on tour. And really, it's only when she sort of goes public with this activism, she actually sits down in front of the Swedish parliament on a school strike and starts to build this momentum through social media. She starts getting really famous for doing this. And it's only then that her mood improves and she stops going from not being able to speak at all to making really eloquent statements and then speeches about the climate crisis. And so it's really fascinating the way her coping mechanism for whatever was triggered by this experience of seeing this film and just getting so obsessed in this like hyper compulsive way with the climate, it goes right into activism. And it's, it's a cope, as you would say. Yeah. I, 
the more I learned about their family, the selective mutism is very strange. And it's especially strange given how now we, her mother still, her mother happened to know exactly what was going on and what, what transpired and why, why no, she, she doesn't was, need she, to speak. You don't need to speak if your mother already knows what you're right, thinking. Right, right. So. And then you, you learn about how, how she had trouble eating for a very long time. And that helps explain a little bit about why she looks so, so young, like for her age. I remember being shocked when I first found out that she was, you know, at that time, 16 or 17 or something. Yeah. And I remember thinking, she looks 11. She looks pre-pubertal. Yeah, she has, she looks stunted. She looks stunted. stunted. Yeah, she looks stunted. And that's, that alone set off a lot of alarm bells in my head that she's not developing properly. And there's something very weird going on. I mean, even if I'm not, I mean, I'm not a doctor, so I don't know how this happens. If your growth does get stunted, isn't it the case that once you start eating again, shouldn't you, you know, flower a little bit and start looking a little bit more mature? But Greta looked very young for a very long time. You know, now I think she's starting to age a little uh, visibly, but she's still not where she should be. She still still doesn't look like a an adult woman, which is what she is now. Um, but mm-hmm. it's um, how old is she now? Do we know? Could look. Um, she was born. I think she's twenty. Oh wow! Yeah, 20. so she's still pretty young. Oh, well, I, I mean, twenty. No, I mean, I looked. Yeah, I looked a lot old. She looks twelve. She's she's still. I'm. She I'm still looks up. twelve. I haven't seen her in a while. I'm trying to yeah. look to see her twenty twenty three. She looks a little bit older, just a little bit older. But I would say now I straight up looked up Greta Thunberg twenty twenty three. I don't know how accurate these pictures are, but now she looks like a little older, 13. <laughs> she, you know, mm. she, she really still does not look her age at all. And it's it's one thing when you just think that, oh, she just looks young. And then it's another when you know that she used to starve herself for lengthy periods of time and might still be starved. I mean, who knows, right? Like who who knows what's going on? I think mm-hmm. it would really dampen her image if if it turned out that she was still struggling with a lot of these issues. It, it like If it turned out that it wasn't the case that activism cured all her problems. It cured her. Yeah, cured her of everything. But it makes sense also that the family and and anybody close to her would never, ever talk about it. Well, except they do talk about it kind of on their own terms. So this memoir gets even better because on the heels of Greta's crisis, her younger sister, Beata, I think that's how you pronounce that, she has her own crisis and it's like makes Greta's look like a walk in the park. So Beata eventually gets an ADHD diagnosis. Um, with elements of Asperger's, OCD, and oppositional defiance disorder. Mm. And so this book has these scenes where like the whole family, the parents and Greta are huddling, they're like huddling together in the guest room, eating dinner from paper plates because Beata cannot tolerate the sound of chewing. Okay. There's another scene where Beata is like so distressed in school, like she goes to school and the regular teacher's not there. It's a substitute teacher. So Milena, the mother has to like wait outside the classroom for two hours. And she writes things like, I can't move from the spot, not even to go to the toilet because Beata will worry. She has to see me through the crack in the door at all times. Okay. So are we surprised then? to uh, learn that uh, Milena, you know, the, part of the reason that Milena is so willing to go with the program is that uh, she has a very, very similar uh, kinds of habits. So there's uh, another scene where Beata cannot walk on the sidewalk without like constantly backing up and starting over if she's leading with the wrong leg, though she only does this when she's with her mother. 
Okay. <laughs> and Milena says, and I have to walk exactly the same way, which is hard because I have longer legs and we're probably quite the funny uh, sight walking the street back and forth. So basically all three members of the family, except the father, have these kind of neuropsychiatric diagnoses. And father's just this kind of like innocent bystander, just peacemaker throughout all of this. It is fascinating the way this pretty clearly narcissistic mother has channeled the entire family's dysfunction into global sensational activism yeah. on climate change. And I'm wondering, I mean, what's, so what's, what are they gaining here? They're, they're gaining a lot of uh, fame and uh, importance yeah, and sense of self. That's what's going on. Yeah. And attention. Uh, now, on the other hand, Breta did improve. Mm. So whatever it takes. As far as we know, I mean, it makes sense that you would then say that, oh, she had all these problems and she was cured when she could finally, you know, but it seems like to me that the kinds of problems Greta is uh, showing evidence of, you don't really get cured. You just sort of learn how to cope or channel those energies into that obsession um, into something else. And maybe that's, so that's the story, huh? That she channeled, channeled, you know, her special difficulties or in this case something that turns out to be an advantage into activism but i i mean even i find that very very it just always made me see made me think that something is deeply wrong with this family not even not knowing all those details that you just shared which were extremely creepy but just that this kid is autistic i don't think that they belong on a stage anywhere i think it makes sense that they see the world in this very black and white way that they have difficulty coping with something like climate change it seems so dire and so intense um and i have to say like i i mean i I wish I could watch this documentary that affected her so much because I remember that when I was growing up, this was around the time where, you know, the Michael Moore-esque documentary was becoming popular, like this this sort of form of activist, um, you know, documentary, like filmmaking that was very, very impactful. I watched a few. I had a teacher of mine in high school had us watch um, this documentary on the corporation and it, I don't know if it was called the corporate, I don't know what it was called. I, I, I haven't looked it up in some time, but I remember it was really impactful to me because of, I mean, just the way that it was filmed. Now I would be a lot more skeptical of just that format. And I would double check a lot of the claims that they're making because I think it's really, really easy to drum up a very scary thing. Um, but it stayed with me for a very long time and it really impacted my politics, actually. Like, I, not not in a Greta, Thun- I, like, I, it wasn't the starving myself now, I'm not going to school. But I I did feel that this idea of corporate personhood was you know, devastating to our politics mm-hmm. and destroying the fabric of American democracy. And I did feel very strongly about that for a very long time. And I think I still do feel a little, you know, I think I am influenced by what I saw and what I never questioned having seen, you know, um, in that format sense. Um, and I wonder, you know, I, I think some of these documentaries can be very, you know, nefarious in that way. Um, Oh, I wonder how many people have come into their activism after just randomly watching some documentary. I bet a lot Mm -hmm. because there was a sort of moment, I feel like in the early two thousands when documentary filmmaking really shifted Mm -hmm. from an art form to an extension of activism. Mm -hmm. They were, they were all agendized. They they were pretty easy to make. I think you had like the, the sort of streaming phenomenon. You had just like all these, it it was just, there were a lot of sort of cheap, easy documentaries out there. Not that some of them weren't really good. And I I don't think Michael Moore is necessarily in this category. He was making like feature length films 
but he certainly set a tone that a lot of people copied. And it just, it's easier to watch a film than to read a book. Right. So you're going to be really affected and it has music and it, you know, pulls at emotional strings in the way that reading something doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. And I think about the, the, you know, some of the things where I suddenly felt very strongly about, sometimes a documentary film had something to do with it. There was the, the one on uh, Blackfish. Um, I won't watch that. Yeah, yeah, that that had a huge impact on me when I when Mm, I watched it. mm -hmm. And I've always I mean, I've always been sympathetic to like the animal rights, you know, activism space or whatever, and always suspicious of things like SeaWorld and zoos in general, but specifically SeaWorld, because they're going around doing tricks. It's like the circus. But there's watching that video. It's haunting. It's terrible. Yeah, I think I gave money yeah. to some charity immediately afterwards. I watched it. I'm like, oh, yeah. like oh, God. And I think that did it did change things. It did. It did. I mean, I, it did. So my understanding yeah. is that what did make it so difference. I, I think yeah. there, I mean it's a tool. Like that's what it is. These kinds of documentary films are a tool and they're potentially a very, very, you know, potent weapon in the hands of the right person and at the right moment for cause. But they can also just be just really it's incredibly effective vehicles for propaganda almost but i wish yeah i don't know maybe we need more like tiger tiger king documentaries just oh watching weirdos i can't i can't watch anything you that has watch, to do with animals i'm afraid of tiger king because i feel like that might be mean to animals too it's not great to animals but yeah, the animals so are not the focus of the film. So you don't get too mm-hmm. caught up in it. Then there's some. I can get caught up in it. I, the littlest animal okay. thing really upsets me. Oh, okay. But yeah, I mean, the Greta thing, it, then we have this whole sort of Munchausen's aspect mm-hmm. with her mm-hmm. mother. I mean, I'm, I don't want to sit here and diagnose her mother. I mean, I do. I very much do want to do that, but I won't, I suppose. Well, not in any official capacity, but you no, know, there's this extreme need for attention on the mother's part and this all this projection onto the daughters and like in a way i feel like greta is it that whole family and their dynamic around her it's a little bit like a a version of dance moms mm-hmm. or something like that right a more dignified version you know of of the same kind of thing but it, it's almost yeah. more nefarious because it is not as visible like the exploitation is not as no visible. It's, it's dance moms for davos right yeah Exactly. I just find it to be so. It's interesting because I, when you place it in those strict terms, but just change up the politics of it, when you talk about the fact that this is a 16 year old, 17 year old giving these speeches in front of however many people with this kind of global world stage who has autism, has who knows, however many different kinds, selective mutism, whatever, not you know, not eating properly. She's clearly stunted in her development, uh, has a mother who is a performer. Uh, when you know all these things, if you just change up the politics, if you change, change up the cause and say, you know, what if she was an activist for, you know, anti-vax, anti-vaxxers, anti-vaccines, um, mm-hmm. you know, causes, how- Yeah, something a little less palatable to the intelligentsia. Yeah, it would be immediately evident how creepy this all is. It would be immediately yeah. evident. Or that or means, like a pro-lifer or something or like pro-lifer, that. Pro-lifer, yeah. yeah. I mean, anything that anything that didn't just uh, blend in so well with the Davos um, attendees anyway. But it, it would be obvious then to all of us that this is not okay and we should not be clapping. Yeah. And, you know, there should not be, we shouldn't be giving this very young girl an audience. And yet, you know. Yeah, we would say she's being brainwashed. And yet she is... Because she has the right cause, she is a voice of truth. 
truth. But if it was a different cause, you would say, no, she's a child. She's a child and she's easily manipulated. She cannot be the voice of truth. Children are not the voices of truth. They're often the voices of their parents. And of course, that's the case with a cause we disagree with, but with a cause we think is so self-evidently true, it's just so much more meaningful and beautiful when this young girl, an eloquent, intense young woman, you know, sees the truth and speaks it. I mean, I do, I do think that if there was a sort of Greta Thunberg of the pro-life movement, I think they would, the the right would embrace it and it just, it wouldn't be covered. It wouldn't be on MSNBC and she would not be getting Nobel Prize nominations, but she would have her audience for sure. She would have her audience. They wouldn't hate her the way they hate Greta. They, I mean, they understand these problems with Greta. They make fun of I remember when the, the, the Greta clips were going around from some yeah. speech where she was like, how dare you, you know, and all these yeah, the how dare um, conservatives were making fun of it and, and sort of roasting her a little bit. And I thought, OK, fine, that's whatever. I mean, she's a child, so maybe maybe it's not her. But it was a it was more laughter at the people that were taking her very seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you're right that I think if this, the cause was flipped around, they would stop seeing the problem as clearly as as they do. But I did, maybe there is something. Do you think there is something about progressivism that accepts this? The, the children are, you know, they're the snow oh, and a child will lead us from the minds of babes, you know, like that the, they can see and speak truth in a way that those of us corrupted by the world and, and simply can't. Yeah. Do. No, I mean, I it's I think that there are millions of people who, for some reason, would rather hear about the ravages of climate change from a troubled adolescent than a qualified scientist. Oh yeah, definitely. I just think that that's much more effective. I mean, I don't, I do, I I can imagine though being a young kid and seeing a movie like that. And especially if you have a mind that is given to compulsion and getting totally hung up on that. And I can imagine being driven crazy by something like that. I mean, the amount of, of information that is out there that if you don't have an ability to detach from it and decouple your feelings from what is being presented will drive you crazy mm-hmm. is infinite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I did feel very strongly about these kinds of things when I was a teenager, but I don't know if I would have, as smart as I was, and like I was, I think I was a lot more eloquent back then because I used to you know, was involved in all these speech competitions, debate stuff, you know, so I was- Yeah, uh, you were you were a, a little messiah, were you not? You were- I was, I think, I think I was smarter. Than, just, I was just, I was just smarter than, I think I'm, every year I'm like a little dumber. I don't know how that, I don't know if that's possible, but it's, it seems like it's happening. Yeah, it's, take it from me, it's um, possible. Okay, but I think e- even that, you know, I, Greta's speeches are so, so impactful that you think she didn't do that. No 16 year old did that. And- even from for causes that, I mean, and I, the thing is, I do agree with like Greta's cause here, not the entire, like not the su- like the superstructure that's like supporting her, but like I agree with with the fact that yeah, well, how can it's not really climate change is real and it's like an issue. Yes, and yes, yes, it's yes, real. Yes, 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 yes. It's so, scary. Yes, 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 I agree with all that. But you know, even even with when it comes to the some of the gender stuff, like there's uh, or the, the pride related kind of kerfuffles that were happening with Muslim parents. I watched some testimony from. Muslim kids uh, who were talking about their, you know, um, my freedom of religion and it shouldn't be, you know, I shouldn't be made to feel uncomfortable because of my religion and I have, you know, every right. And they gave such beautiful, eloquent speeches about their First Amendment rights 
And I agreed with the whole speech, but then I thought, this is so creepy. Why are you having this child say something that was definitely written by a lawyer and their parents or whatever? You know, it was it was written by very competent adults who knew details of, you know, who knew how to present this argument in this very forceful way that even though I'm on board with a lot of what they're saying and I find the argument persuasive, it's the messenger that is creeping me out. And I don't want to I don't want to be involved. But this is like the oldest story in the world. People have been pimping out their kids for all sorts of reasons. I mean, they're stage mothers. And Mm -hmm. I don't know why we're we're putting this on mothers because often that is the case. Not always. Not always. But yeah, people's need for attention is often like channeled through their kids Mm. very, very often. Yeah. And it's really damaging. I can't think of it's a really fucked up way to grow up. I can tell you that. Yeah. And there is like shades of gray, right? I mean, so many great leaders, athletes, you know, geniuses, whatever, are people who have very intense parents who push them to be a certain way from a very young age. And it almost seems sometimes a little abusive, maybe flat out. Yeah, well, we were talking about this before. The tiger, the tiger mom thing. Tiger yeah, mom sure. thing, but yeah, but also, you know, Venus Sports. and Serena yeah, Williams' yeah, dad, yeah. right? I mean, in another, yeah. there's a way to spin that story to make that guy sound like a monster. Um, yeah. And I think that's true of every, probably every parent of an Olympic athlete, especially the kinds of uh, sports where you have to really peak young. Um, yeah. Or they send their kid away for training. I mean, all the gymnasts, those parents, a just, lot of them have to drop out of school, right? They, there's the dropping out of school thing. Like yeah, that one thread that just sort of ties up a bit children of like a- little baby actors, you know, um, I'm thinking of that, um, one actress, what is her name? Who just wrote the book about her mother. I'm glad my mom's dead. I think we discussed it for a little while. Oh, it was, yeah. Um, I'm glad my mom died by Jeanette McCurdy. Right. So she's she's this uh, child actress. I remember seeing her on Disney Channel and she was a little bit after my time. So it was just like when the Disney Channel was on, when my younger siblings were watching it. But she was she was a presence on many, many shows. Hmm. You got the sense that she was working all the time. And uh, she published a book literally titled I'm glad my mom is my mom died and she's holding like a little face and it's like wow catchy title (laughs) yeah um and I felt you know you feel terrible for her because she describes kind of she describes her experience growing up and how bizarre her mother was Uh, a lot of these parents yeah that that I think there's a way to do this because you also it's all the stories that you don't hear of parents who actually you know maybe they did push their kids a little too hard maybe they were projecting their own desires onto the kids a little bit but also were able to balance it in a way that the child doesn't resent them terribly, the child doesn't hate themselves, the child also feels that they uh, are powerful in their own in their own lives and that even grateful to the parent for giving them this chance to be brilliant like Venus and Serena are. So I think there's a there is a way to do that thing but in a way that that isn't um extremely abusive and maybe the difference is is to the degree to which a parent is amplifying what they see as a greatness in their child versus compensating for something they feel that they lack, whether that's attention or, yeah, you know. I mean, there's all kinds of ways. Also, the, the child could be supporting the family. I mean, that happens a lot. Mm-hmm. The family actors, is, yeah. is desperate. Yeah, that does happen. And I think to be fair, like with Greta, the family didn't seem to have any particular interest in climate before this happened. Like what I find really interesting to, about her is just her brain got wrapped around this idea 
And the only way through it, the only way to get out of it was to like almost double down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like her whole life is now wrapped around this so, idea. So they, did the parents question this? Like was Greta like, this is the way forward. And everybody was like, okay. I think they were sort of like, um, oh my gosh, she's really sick. This is terrible. This is terrible. Like we're desperate. And suddenly she started to get better. So they all went along with it. And according to the mother, it's a calling. Well, obviously this, she's not sick. She's a, she's chosen. This is, she's called I like that. to do this. Chosen. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. this is, this is also what we see in so much of this, like these little philosopher kings. Mm-hmm. Like we see this with the gender stuff. Like it's child led, it's child guided. Kids know who they are. Very creepy. And very creepy. It's again, and it's like such a fine line because yes, some children, in a lot of ways, children know who they are. What does that even mean though? Like, I don't know what, just, I don't know what it means. I don't think they know who they are. I think it's ridiculous. I mean, what does that mean? Who, you know, who? You don't want to just be a complete authoritarian, but it's the worship of children in this culture is I think unexamined. We're obsessed with children. We don't treat them very well. We don't have good parents, don't have enough lovers to pull. And yet we're absolutely worshipful of their like inner thoughts and decisions. Not only do we not look at them as children, which is, I'm, I'm sorry, but they're not, I love kids. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a mother. I love kids. I love being around kids. When my kids grow up, I will probably find a way to have more kids in my life, like foster kids, whatever. I like kids. Oh, Sarah, come on. What about our podcast? You can't do that. Okay. I'll. God, only if they can like do audio audio engineering and make YouTube thumbnails. All right. I can push them into it. Like, like Greta's like, yeah. Like, no, just get, just order up ones that have those skills. Right. I'm sure there's a few in the foster care system with those kinds of skills. Okay, I'll accept applications. Probably. I'll start now searching. It might take a while. Yeah, people. But I, kids are kids. Kids are not, they are not developed human beings. They are not capable of reason in the way an adult is capable of reason. Of course, there are such a thing as a willful child, a smart child, precocious child, a child that appears to, to know themselves. But I think that it is grotesque to view children as just baby, you know, like small sized miniature adults. And I see this a lot in the in the kinds of circles that where they use the word kiddos. You know what I'm talking about? Oh my god, kiddos! Yes. Hey, kiddo! Yeah, what is that? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, but it's a red flag. I feel like that's a gender ideologue thing. It's a red flag. You see flag. that all the time. I, yeah, it's a, it's a gender. It's just a. I don't know why they say. Why don't they say kids? Why do they say kiddo? Does, it's all people on the left. Does anybody on the right say kiddo? Say yeah. kiddos. I don't know where it's coming from. And I don't know why it's such a great signal of like, a specific it really kind of is. politics. but it's this, maybe it is that, that they don't actually spend that much time with kids until they have kids. Um, and they have a very different, very weird conception of kids, but I don't, kids need guidance. Kids need support. Kids don't understand a lot about the world. Kids are so easily manipulated. They're the most easily manipulated people around that you can make a kid believe anything, you know, like I, my kid was obsessed with vacuums and he wanted to play with the vacuum. And I said, no, the vacuum went to the vacuum house. He went back to his house. And he was like, oh, okay. I mean, well, look at you now. You're anthropomorphizing the ba- the vacuum playing into this. He just accepted it. He was just like, okay. Vacuum. Yeah, but you're acting like the vacuum back is to- a person. It went back into its vacuum house. Vacuum went to a vacuum house. And, but what I'm saying is he believed me that he bought it. The story was... Um, the vacuum is sleeping. Vacuum went to vac- vacuum, went back to vacuum house and... 
that so, so Beckham's not here. We can't play. With, and that's kids. You could just you could just lie to them. My dad used to lie a lot to me just for fun. Like it was just he would just troll me constantly. And I believe I believed a lot of this. And like what kinds of things? I asked him once how like a stoplight, um, like a traffic light worked. And <laughs> I think he said that underground there are like tunnels and there are people who are sitting in desks underground and they're watching the traffic. Like they, they have like cameras and they're looking and they're watching it, the, the traffic and they move it in accordance to the needs of the traffic. But there are people under underground at every... It's very elaborate. Are they like trafficking children through the tunnels and harvesting organs and drinking blood? Here's the thing. You didn't have to go. I didn't really push. I didn't ask for details to make the whole thing make sense because of the kid. I was just like, oh, I guess. I mean, how else? What else? <laughs> yeah. It must be it. That must be how it is more. It is. That is more understandable, though, than what how, how traffic lights actually work. Yeah. I don't even understand how traffic lights actually work. It's unfathomable. They're the signal. There's like even back before computers, like they worked. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, I well, this was also when I was this was one of the first few times I ever saw one because in Pakistan, they weren't that common. Um, or at least in the part of uh, Karachi where I grew up and my um, my parents were, so we, we were like driving to the zoo or something and a, there were, it was a nicer, more upscale area. And so there were, there were traffic lights. And I was like, what is that? And how does that work? And he was like, let me tell you. And he told me. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll have to get him on the show to explain. I think that would be a good, um, good goal. Yeah. He's a kind of a troll, but I guess you could, you, you could just do that. You could do that with kids and they'll just believe you. <laughs> you were raised by a troll and now you feed the trolls all day. Yeah. Well now so I just, look at that. You just don't believe him now that that's the, you're just looking for your father. That's the way seeking. to go. And now he just um, tries to raise your like blood pressure by just saying something he knows will really piss you off. And he like waits, he waits to see your reaction, like gets some kind of joy. <laughs> but what is it? So getting back to like who gets into activism and what are the sort of cognitive, what's the cognitive profile of that sort of person? What is the connection between autism spectrum and activism? Yeah, I, don't, I mean, it feels intuitively, it feels like there's there's definitely something there. There's definitely a selection mechanism happening where the kinds of people who feel very intensely, very black and white about things or prone to that kind of emotion um, would gravitate to activism. But on the whole, I've found, you know, in my experience, activism is a mixed bunch of people and it creates, there's a, there's a lot of odd dynamics that happen in activism or are visible in activism in a way that they they may not be with a lot of you know normal people with normal lives but with activism you have you know on the one hand the activists who unless they're famous are broke you know because they're they're making no money mm. you, you make no or they're money independently wealthy or they're independently wealthy so you have the either either you're broke and you're a normal person and you choose to be broke and that's how and this is how you sleep at night or you are you you have so much money that it doesn't matter that you're making no money. But even if those very independently wealthy people weren't working in activism, they, you know, they're the donor class anyway. So you're you mm -hmm. always you're always interacting with people just of stratospheric wealth, you know, the kinds of wealth where you you don't even you have no conception of how they live because it's it's just so it's so far away from normal human uh lives. So there's just just from that one in in that one dimension class, uh, activism is strange, very strange. But then on top of that, you have the certain different kinds of psychologies that come together that gravitate towards activism. There's the obvious goody two-shoes 
kind of people. And there's a lot of those, you know, so I don't want to, I don't want to say that activism is just filled with crazy people. And that's, that's all that there is. You often just hear a lot from the crazies um, yeah, because they make a lot of noise, but there, there just, there are a lot of people there who are genuinely wanting to do good in the world. Um, you know, when I launched any kind of initiative, I would get lots of people who are wanting to volunteer and they're just like, look, I just want to give back, you know, either, you know, this organization helped me or, I went through it. I went through something difficult and mm-hmm. I just want to make sure other people don't go, don't go through this either. And so there's, there's a lot of just good guys who want to do good, but I think the nonprofit like activists, especially the activism sector tends to like destroy those people's souls, you know, like it takes them and then it steps some of their will and it tosses them out. Wait, how so? Well, partially because you have to deal with the dynamic, the social dynamics of, of activism itself, because the other people that are coming in to activism are a lot of binary thinkers that are tough to deal with, um, people with bizarre disorders of, you know, who knows what kind of special toxic mix, um, but people who who desire to be self-righteous and they gravitate towards uh, being kind of a martyr in these kind of martyr roles uh, mm-hmm. or to be seen as to be that kind of person. Um, so there's there are some of those. And there's just like pure vultures, you know, people who very callously, like I think Maybe even I, w- I would go as so far as to call them sociopaths. I've seen several in activist spaces who recognize there's a bunch of silly people here, like, you know, or or goody two shoes here. And I can take advantage of the situation. Mm, yeah, um, I think that's a lot of what's going on. Like the nice Facebook ladies. Right. It's and it's easy for yeah. them because this is a sector with a lot of you're operating in goodwill. You know, um, it's not the most effective sector there is no easy way to judge your effect efficacy, the efficacy of a program. Um, and then, you know, in the beginning stages with a lot of these nonprofits and some sometimes forever, like they're really operating on shoestring budgets with, mm-hmm. you know, huge dependencies on a volunteer base. And sometimes they're entirely volunteer based. So your friends, you're trusting each other. You have to have this like high level of trust. Um, and that's an environment for a bad person to come in and get away with a lot before they're caught. And, you know, uh, and then, then when, even when they are caught, they're not really punished properly. They're not really, you know, there's no big expose on this psycho because for reasons of PR, you don't want to, you know, um, a nonprofit doesn't want to shed light. You know? Right. Yeah. What happened to the Black Lives Matter uh, leader who was buying multiple houses? Yeah. With- well, you just want to shush it up because it scares donors, yeah. you know, well, yeah, other yeah. nonprofits might even, you know, even if you're in the same bubble, you don't want the a, a group that's very similar to you to be exposed right. like this, who you work with, you know, because it sort of taints you. There's small donor pools that are kind of paying everybody, you know, they're, they're sort of funding all the groups or in a in little bits funding all the little groups. You don't want them to get tired. You don't want them to be disgusted or freaked out with any yeah. kind of mismanagement. So there are a lot of really twisted incentives in the activism industry that undo a lot of the good intentions of people who go into it. And just, you know, it's interesting because I've come out of it thinking on the one hand, in certain situations, this is the only industry that can make a change. And then in others, uh, it is impossible for it to do anything good. And it's better to have a profit motive, you know? Um, mm. So, yeah, I, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about the sector, but it's a, it's a huge sector in the, in America, at least. Um, the, you know, my European kind of colleagues or like associates, people I know from work, it's interesting because they don't always have, they don't have as much money. They don't have as many like billionaires floating around as we do. Mm. And so the, their money pools are usually smaller and often activists aren't full-time employees or not as often as they are in, in the U S so the U S has professionalized activism 
in right. a way that no one else can really touch. Of course, that's the American way. Yeah. yeah. I like how in the in the UK they call themselves campaigners. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of activists. I think I like that. Do I like that better? Hmm. It feels like very positive. Like I'm I'm campaigning for this. I'm it's just like you're a lobbyist almost. Activist, yeah. It's, it's not ironic. too I mean yeah. in a way, right? I mean you're yeah. you're you're a lobbyist for a cause. Yeah, I think especially the the fact that so many nonprofits are based on social causes, and I say this as somebody who founded, you know, in more than one um nonprofit that is where where the charitable activity was actually furthering and edu- you know, furthering a social cause in various ways. But that category, I think, has to be uh, something we're more careful about because it is too easy for it to be simply a a mechanism of very deeply pocketed people to spread their opinion a little bit farther. Like it's not too different from the concerns that people have of rich people having a bigger vote than everybody else because you know they're able to yeah. pool their money in all these like in all these ways and affect public opinion. But this is another way for this very, very hyper wealthy class to have a much bigger say in public opinion, because they can just crowd the airwaves with full time, like people who are there, that this is what they're doing. They're on Twitter full time. They're on, this is the, this is their actual job. Um, so there's yeah. something about, I think this category of social activism nonprofits that I, I almost wish there was more investigation, you know, from a governmental perspective, like does, does this really deserve nonprofit status, um, mm-hmm. you know, maybe, maybe more, um, detailed reporting requirements, something. Yeah. But then they'll just become churches. Well, at least with churches, like, you know, that's what they are, you know? And when they start talking about politics, a lot of us get queasy for good reason. And it's, it just, it, I, I think we need to find a way to, I don't want to increase a burden on the industry because of course, if you are a small nonprofit, you're just furthering one little social cause. It, you don't have a lot of money to go around anyway. And then any additional reporting requirement is just maybe sometimes a huge burden. But I still think we need to think a little bit more about what we're, what we're granting the nonprofit status to. And it, and it definitely seems to me that there is a class factor happening here as well that I think that feeding the homeless, you know, your local homeless shelter, you can, you can give them money or you can work for your local homeless shelter. You can do that. But that doesn't appeal to a certain upper middle class or even just upper class person as a social cause, like social justice, women's rights. Mm -hmm. These rights-based organizations are attractive to a certain kind of person in a way that, you know, homeless shelter is kind of gross. You know, you got to be around poor people. You're going to, you know, you got to actually gotta touch them. You got to, you know. Yeah. You got it. There's on the ground work to be done. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I find that very, I find it all very interesting. And then the growth of this like effective altruism movement as well has been yeah. very interesting to me as someone who did not, I mean, my work was not effective altruism. Like it, it doesn't fit the the metrics of effective altruism at all. There were no metrics that you can easily measure in the first place. You had to just, just rely on intuition and sort of indirect ways of measuring how effective you were. Um, direct ways were just literally impossible when it comes to, you know, a social cause. Mm-hmm. So, but effective act- altruism says, well, we can, um, this means that this is a bad cause. And we need to find, we need to find measurable, like how many malaria nets did you provide? And then how many lives did you save per malaria net? Um, Yeah. 
I think that's a very, I get it. I know it's very appealing. I get the appeal. But it's also a little, it's a little too, too. It's a little, there's a lot of just so stories in effective altruism. There are a lot of problems um, with it as well. Right. Yeah. And I think it's, it appeals to a certain kind of person. Definitely. I think a, the kind of person who might be troubled by, you know, the kinds of, I think, ethical and moral judgments that you have to make, like value judgments that you have to make when you're otherwise dealing in the nonprofit sector. Um, there's a lot of, you know, maybe this works, maybe it doesn't work kind of, you know, that you're putting faith in, in something. Um, and there's mm -hmm. the kind of person who wants there to be just a more black and white calculus. And they want, they want a number, <laughs> you know, they want a number. They just want to optimize for that number. And I think it seems like a solution, but I'm very dubious that it, that it actually is much of a solution at all. And there's some aspects of it that I find very creepy, actually. I am looking at Greta's Wikipedia page. She has done quite a lot. Has she? I have to say she's been very busy. Well, if you're uh, not going to school yeah, or college, I yeah, guess. Yeah, let's be clear. I, I do. I, the one I'm really mad at is her mother. So she is, she, she, it's not like she's resting on her laurels. I don't think this, I she's mean, done a lot. It, it's not her that I have a problem with. No. So much as the infrastructure that's a, that puts a crown on her head or you know, a halo or whatever. I have a problem with that. I have the problem yeah. with everything else around it, but I, it's hard to hate her or even dislike her. I feel a little bit of pity towards her. I feel a little pity towards all these all these young people who are thirsting into the spotlight for any reason, even if they asked for it. I feel a little bit sorry for them. Yeah. Well, her sister has uh, embarked on a singing career mm. more recently. Mm. So okay. Um, well, good luck to there's her. There's that. Yeah. All right. Well, do we have uh, do we have any more on this? Or are we gonna? No, we should. Uh, I think we we should move on because it's, yeah. It's... We're going to give our little announcements now. Oh, yeah. Housekeeping. It's announcement yeah. time. Housekeeping. What? Uh, who first coined the term housekeeping? When did it all become? Well, Sam Harris says it all the time. I know, but was he the first one? Well, I would assume. That's where. That's the first time I heard it, but. He does. Sam Harris must do a lot of housekeeping. Do you think he does a lot of actual housekeeping in his house? Or? Probably never. I think he probably has a maid that comes in every day. Um, there's no, He has a housekeeper. I think we should have a maid come in to do this section of the podcast a literal housekeeper and she's going to come in and she's going to give do the housekeeping okay by saying what we have coming up that kind of thing okay i think so we can do that we can afford that another goal hashtag goals so what do we have to housekeep about well um if you want access to the bonus you have to subscribe you have to become a paying subscriber you can do that at specialplace.substat.com if you can't do that well you are getting something for free so please rate and review it helps us yeah. so much and people are so mean sometimes and leave bad reviews and it it gets to us it's uh every time a little bit of trauma and one day we're just gonna quit one day we're just gonna say yeah i can't take the hate anymore and we're i'm we should do at least one episode where we read them and then I can start crying like Jordan Peterson. Especially type. now that we're on YouTube. Yeah. That's uh, so you should rate and review it. You should be nice to us on YouTube if you want, really yes. want to help us. Thumbs up, subscribe, whatever, like subscribe. Yeah, that's that's one way to just support us. That's always helpful. Just a little bit of a little rating boost is really good. Um, so yeah. there's that. What else? We are having a founding member hangout again coming up in a few weeks. Mm -hmm. That's going to be Saturday, July 22nd at... 4 p.m. Mm. Eastern time. Mm. 4 p.m. No, no. Later Eastern time. It has. Sorry, 4 p.m. Pacific time. Yeah, 7 p.m. Eastern time. Excuse me. Yeah, 7 no p.m. Eastern time. Work for me. Yeah, no, and then we will be, be there. Ugh. Yeah. 
Megan. If they, if you want, if you want Sarah to show up, you got to be a super founding member. Okay. But uh, that, well, it, yeah. those are always great conversations, but the, and there'll be another one, but you have to be a founding member to do that. And then what else? We are having a, uh, announcing a, um, advice column. I think we did announce it before. So that's, this is like the second announcement. Doesn't count, right? Or did we announce it only to the bonus? I think we were just kind of like, we're not sure. We're thinking about okay, it. We're okay, working okay. on it. But yeah. now it's definitely happening. It's definitely happening. We're going to do an advice column. Well, it's not a column. We're going to do advice segment. Advice segment. We're going to do an advice segment. Um, and that usually gets people really like riled up for some reason. Every time I give like, this is what I'm going to do. And people are- Because your, your lived experience all- is invaluable on my, people are mad. People get mad. Like everybody for whom this advice, either this is not what they, what they did in life, or it just makes them mad to hear it, to have someone say it. I always get a bunch of hate comments. So that should be fun. Um, fodder for some. Okay. So this is relationship advice, professional advice, any kind of advice at all, any kind of advice. And don't worry about whether or not we're qualified to do it because, Oh, for sure. Don't worry about that. We will, we will will give it our very, our best shot. Okay. Um, and the name of the segment is Do As We Say. Okay. I, I think that that's a tentative name, isn't it? Or is this okay. we are definitely doing it? Do As We Say, Not As We Do. Yeah, for now. Do As We Say. Okay. Do As We Say. Or or What Would Sarah Do? <laughs> or that. Why? Just Why nobody's going to care what my advice is. Nobody, nobody, no, but nobody wants to do what, nobody wants to do as I do. Everybody complains about it, about the thing. Why, why what I say doesn't apply to their life. Meh, meh, meh. Anyway, whatever. Well, so, you can complain a lot when we answer your questions and and tell you yeah. tell you how to live your lives and improve everything about it. Yeah. So those are the things. And I will just say again that I am doing a Zoom writing class in personal essay and memoir, September 6th through October 11th, six consecutive Wednesdays from 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern time. And one more thing quickly, I have added an unspeakeasy retreat in Denver, a one-day retreat on Saturday, September 30th in Denver at, that is going to include an unspeakeasy for all party afterwards. So go to the unspeakeasy.com to find out about that. Okay. Cool. Lots of, lots of, lots of announcement, lots of housekeeping. So that's yes. done. Okay. So yeah, we had a lot of response to the unfu- unfuckable hate nerds discussion mm-hmm. last week. Yeah. And I actually, I don't know how you're feeling about Substack. I was up until three in the morning trying to write something about this, <laughs> which is unheard of for me. I mean, writing is unheard of for me at this point. So the William Derezowitz piece that we were discussing that was in Tablet led off with talking about Mark Marin, the podcaster, constantly talking about unfuckable hate nerds and talking about how they were just losers that lived in the basement and they were just full of hate and they were trolls and et cetera, et cetera. And it got me thinking about why it is that so many men, especially like the quote unquote high value men, uh, to use the artless term of art, are so ready to pile on these guys. Mm -hmm. And to the point where I think it's mostly women who are even talking about this phenomenon. Yeah. Or defending these guys at all or feeling sympathetic for these guys. But that's, yeah, I mean, that's what we do. We're women and we feel sympathetic, you know. Well, but I think part of what's happening is that a lot of these guys want to have there be no doubt whatsoever that they are not like Mm -hmm. these hate nerds. Mm -hmm. They want to have like a clear distance and to show any amount of empathy or relating to them at all would be showing their hand in a way that is just intolerable. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so I was, 
I was thinking about that and I was wondering if there's a version that women do with like women, other women who are not attractive. I mean, I know there was also a lot of discussion about the idea that there is such a thing as unfuckable women. And when we talk about women having all this power when they're young, we're really talking about a subset of attractive women or just attractive women per se. There was some pushback and men said, well, yeah, but that's really like most young women. I don't know. I, I think women yeah. have a completely different problem, which is, you know, with men, it's they, it's hard for them to get sympathy. They get the crush, you know, not just reality, but a very brutal version of reality foisted on them. Foisted? Yeah. 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 At a very, you know, early age, even, you know, like they're teenagers and everybody's, you're, you're just a creep, you know, and if you, yeah. you know, said to a teenage girl, you're a creep, it's, you're destroying her, man, you give drama, she's yeah. so young, she's, now she's going to cut herself. But there's a kind of, there, there's a sense of just cultural compassion that we have towards the suffering of women in general, that we don't have towards men in general. But even, you know, extending beyond that, we just don't, we find it easier to think of men in these like ugly terms, you know, just very, very. Um, yeah, because uh, because they already have the power. So it's OK to talk about them this way. I, I think it's more than just power. You know, I think it's more than just like a response to a cultural thing. I think cavemen were like, you know what I mean? Like, I think we've always been a a we have as humanity. I think we have an instinct to be kinder to women in a way that we're not to men. Yeah. And uh and even boys. And I think that maybe to reconcile with that, you know, as being something very deep is, would be helpful if it comes to actually fixing it, because, you know, we recognize how deep the tendency actually is um, and how maybe even the fact that it might be innate. I remember um, I was seeing a comment on the sub stack about from some guy, one of the guys, sorry, guy, he was uh, talking about how it's very hard for men to confront women and talk to them honestly about situations when in, in the context of will women, will women save us from this woke, you know, thing. And he was, he, mm. he, he was talking about how, you know, you're looking at this like creature with big eyes and like, it's just ready to cry or whatever. And if you have this sense of wanting, you know, wanting to protect this vulnerable person. And I think we all have that sense of wanting to protect, you know, women in a way that we just don't with uh, men. And that, comes across when, especially when we're in the way that we discuss loser men versus loser yeah. women, you know, it's just, it's mean to call them women losers, even if they are, it's mean to call them ugly. In fact, instead you do the opposite. You celebrate them and say that they're beautiful. Um, so there is something about like the hug boxing, you know, kind of gaslighty reality that women like, have you heard of this hug boxing? Wait, hug boxing? I've never heard this. Yeah. It's an internet no. term. It's when you like go on to a forum. I, I think it, I know it in relation to a lot of like trans forums, but I think it's existed way before then where you just like go to an online community and you post something and they're just like, yeah, amazing. And they are wrong and divorce that man. And yeah. Oh, so it's like love bomb. Oh, I see. Yeah. So it's like a form of love bombing. Yeah. Uh, kind of like that, but it's like a hug box. I'm now I'm making, no. now you're making me paranoid. Did I just make that up? Okay. Whatever. I like it though. Yeah. It makes me think of like a Temple Grandin or would have to be in the squeeze machine, the squeeze machine. Well, that's for autists. Like, like a, you know, you have to have a, like a, you know, yeah, heavy yeah, yeah, lead yeah, yeah. blanket on your, yeah, it's yeah. a lead blanket. I think that's where it's from. I think it's just this, oh, this group, this community that's just, you're just amazing and everything you do is right. And it's all perfect. And you're, it's, yeah. it's so positive, especially in as directed to you, you know, that you cannot improve. 
You know, I think you just don't, it's very, very hard to find people being honest to women in a way that would be helpful to women. And it makes me feel oh, no, you never, you can't be, yeah. I mean, but that's just like the code of girl. Yeah. You are always like, Oh no, my God. Oh no. Yeah. He's not calling you. He's just intimidated by you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this or that. Like, that's just, you live that way. I mean, this is getting a little bit off the track, but I felt lately like in texting with, I, I'd say other people generally, but maybe more so women, there's like this mandate to put a heart emoji or be like, yes. Or like, you can't just stop the conversation. You have to put a heart mm. or you have to like have an explanation. Like suddenly like if you don't use an ex- exclamation point, you're being a, like abrupt oh. and a jerk. Like if you just, well, I guess you're not supposed to use a period at all. Oh, no, Megan, I do that. Don't you do that? I no, do that. you are, I, you, I don't expect anything. Okay. From. Cause I feel like I'm pretty but, abrupt, right? I just like stop talking. Talking and that's when <laughs> no that's fine but I think that's fine but I think there's a sort of like girl code of ethics mm. where you have to be like I love you you're the greatest you know yeah. lots of love yeah yeah, yeah yeah and it's really exhausting mm. I'm sorry to use that term but it is yeah but if you if a woman doesn't do that to you you think she does she's unhappy with she's you she's mad right? at like, you maybe yeah. that's why people do people think I'm mad at them all the time I don't hug I don't do I don't think I do that do I do that? No, you no, don't no. do that. But I know you all well enough to know that you're not. I'm not but, mad at um, you. That's just maybe. Uh, what I, am I mean, doing. you should be mad at me sometimes. But uh, you no, know, I, I. But I agree that I. And I feel that pre- when I see a, a woman do that, then I'm like, I feel the pressure to then do that, and it's very unnatural. And to yes, me. And then it's just like this self perpetuating cycle. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, but uh, getting back to the the men talking about other men. Like, I, I don't know if you listen to Mark Maron a lot. Like, he's such an interesting example because he is a very high status guy. Like he has managed to parlay like a sort of loserish aura into like being a Hollywood star. And actually, I mean, his whole thing was that he was a comic in the nineties and he was an addict as they all were. And, you know, kind of down and out well into his forties. And then he started this podcast in his garage and he was interviewing other comics and it was very vulnerable. It was this like confessional style. Mm-hmm. Like he, as a man was appropriating this confessional conversational approach. That was a very feminine thing, frankly. Yeah. And that just became huge. The podcast was huge. I mean, Obama, President Obama was a guest on his podcast in his garage, in his random house in Northeast LA. Like the Secret Service came and were like crawling on the roof of Mark Maron's yeah. random little bungalow house I remember where that. he lived at the time. And like he cursed or yeah. something and it was like news because Insane. Obama said the F word or right. something. I remember, I remember. Right. So he was had so much cred like the idea like whoever was advising obama was like oh this is a great stop for you to make if you want to you'd be cool yeah it's very no it was massive hipster cred but mark Marin also you know he there was a show about his life and the sort of louis ck vein and yeah he was twice divorced he's got a ton of cats he's dating younger women all the time and we know this because it's in his show. This is not a secret. So he's like somebody who has transcended the nerdy hate thing. I and mean, he's a very angry person. That's very much part of his persona and like very much succeeded as a high value man. And so I find it very telling, I guess, that he's so quick to let everybody know that he doesn't have anything to do with these basement dwellers. I wonder if it's because he does actually relate to it. You know what I mean? Like he, he, yeah, he, I he, so. he can like that there was a point in his life where that was him. 
And that's not hard to imagine. That's not hard to imagine with like Louis C.K. Yeah. either. Like it's it. I y- think that, you look at right. You know, pictures of him when he was younger, and you're like, ooh, like it was. It was always bad. It's not like an. It's not like a new thing where he's older and now he looks messed up. But it, it's never been a looker. But I find it, it's just it's it's punching down, really. You know, I mean, I yeah. hate to use that word, but like that's that is what it is, right? And I'm surprised that Marin is punching down because he's also like really absorbed the social justice. Mm-hmm. Um, sensibility. Oh, but th- these are these guys, young guys, are the enemies of social. They're the. Yeah, they are right. the. They're they're maga trolls, or they're just Reddit. You know, they're they're just four chan. You know, trolls. I think yeah. fu- fundamentally, there's just not there's there's an unwillingness to accept male sexuality as many men describe it. You know, and not not all men, but in the way that many men describe it as. You know, I think there was a a commenter, and I again, I forget. I think I know who to name tip of my tongue. I know what he looks like because he came to a, a a hangout. But he was talking about how he describes sex. You know, the need for sex is a kind of it's like hunger. It's the same as hunger. And when he hasn't, when when he's not hungry, yeah, he gets hangry. Oh yeah, being hangry. Yeah, yes. You know, because he just hasn't had enough to eat for for a long time, and it affects his mood and affects the way he, you know, his satisfaction with everything else. And I think that's I've heard that from a lot of from a lot of men I've heard that same I mean not very, a very similar kind of analogy that it's a it's a need in a way that I don't think about sex as a need and I wish we would just accept that instead of demonizing it all the time you know it doesn't have to be I don't have to share it and I don't I don't share it I don't share it at all and but that doesn't mean that I hate men for being different I think it would just the thing is, is that when you accept that, when you accept that it's a need for men in the way that hunger is a need, now there is a duty or, you know, some, there is an obligation on the female partners in the relationship to meet this need. Right. I guess. Right. If you're going to acknowledge the need. Um, and that's rapey. That's, that's rape. Now you're, you know, now women are being raped all the time because they then have to meet it. Yeah, yeah. Right. And I think that's, that's what's underlying this tendency to deny male sexuality. If it didn't ask mm. anything of women, I think it would be different. But it asks something of women um, that in the way that we currently conceive of sex is demonic because we think of, you know, consensual sex is very good. And, you know, sex that you're having when you don't really want to, but your partner has to go, okay, fine. Like that doesn't count as consensual sex. Like it's been pressured and you've been forced into it. And mm. so it's some kind, it's rape adjacent. If, <laughs> if it's not quite, <laughs> it's not rape, but it's, you know, almost, but there's um, a a lack of nuance, you know, and just this uh, consent model only as a view of of looking at a healthy sexual life and relationship that I think is part of the problem here as well. That's what the polyamory people would say. They say, we're presenting an alternative to this. Here's a solution. We are acknowledging people have needs. Yeah. Yeah. How come that doesn't go very well? Yeah. Well, there was a, there's an excellent piece in the Washington Post by Christine Emba, who is an editor and an opinion columnist there. She's also the author of a book called Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. She's a, it, Christine Emba is a very interesting person. Her book was like very much in the Louise Perry vein, but um, it didn't seem to get as much play. Hmm. Christine, she's an American. I always say Louise, I think, gets a pass. People like Richard Reeves and Louise Perry and Mary Harrington, because they're British, I, I feel like they can get away with this. Christine Emba is also a Black woman. And I a lot of, I think, um, her, her personal stake in this comes from being an educated Black woman and not having a big pool of educated Black men mm-hmm. to choose from. It's certainly not the centerpiece of her argument in any way, but I have I would imagine that her perspective is 
that's a, a big part of her of her interest in this. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, this is like a really excellent piece uh, that was just um, published in the Washington Post. It's really long, and it's basically it's kind of just a synopsis of what we talk about here all the time. Like, why is it that these men are falling behind? And why is it that we're not allowed to talk about them? Mm -hmm. And I just find it really telling that this is yet another woman who is talking about this. Yeah. No, I think, I think, you know, even beyond the punching down kind of thing, like the incentives that the climate places on men with a following to behave a certain way. I think there's also just, um, you know, maybe maybe men don't rally around, you know, they don't white knight other men in the way they white knight other women um, mm. and they don't feel the need to. But women do white knight each other. You know, women do have support spaces for each other. So this is the you know, the, there's a negative and a positive to ha- to being kind of like a hug boxy environment. If you're a woman, on the yeah. one hand, you never improve because nothing's ever wrong with you. You're perfect all the time. And, uh, you know, the positive is that when you do need support, when you do need some help, there are many, many shoulders to cry on and they will they will be comforting and they will be empathetic and they will take you at your word and, you know, hashtag believe you or whatever. And for men, I think that that just doesn't exist. And other men are not going to start that. And not just for this punching down, hey, I'm not like them kind of reason. I think they're Mm. just uh, men don't form support groups of other men where they just chat about, you know, how, how hard they have it. I think that's just a rare thing for men. Um, right. But they can, they can maybe, but okay. I think it's in a very, in very traumatic kind of contexts. And it often, I think there's a seedy character to a lot of these spaces because, you know, like the incel groups or men going their own way or whatever, because it's, it's men that have gotten to a point where they are really, I mean, they're on the edge and now they need support. Well, they're just divorced from reality. You're right. Right. I mean, the, the average I man mean, they who are might, egging each other on in the same way, like the hug box, it's just a negative hug box. It's a hate box. It's a hate box. Right. I mean, they, so they don't, they don't even, it's not, you're so awesome, man. It's like, no, you are ugly. You are ugly and we're all ugly. And that's why we're incels and nobody's going to have sex with us because we're ugly. And so we need to think about maybe just, we're never going to have, we're, we're never, we just have to face up to the fact like, like the black pill that you're just never going to have sex or a, or a relationship or whatever. I mean, they, they're very, it's very, it's like the, an anti-support group. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> it's not coping. It's, it's, it's not fixing the problem at right. all. It's I mean, like an affinity group. Yeah. Well, they do have something in common. There's a camaraderie, but it's not supportive. I, but I'm trying to like figure out if women are, so yes, there's definitely the hug box phenomenon, but do women try to distance themselves from unfuckable women because we don't want to be seen as unfuckable ourselves? No, I don't think we do. Not 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 at at all. all. There's not a sort of like, oh, we don't, I mean, but you do see it. I mean, the sorority is not going to let in somebody who's not attractive or you're not, I mean, women tend to have groups of friends that are pretty much on a par. But women, like female bullies, they don't bully the way male bullies. Like they don't target their victims in the same way. And I think that might, this might be kind of like, this might help us understand what's going on. Male bullies pick on, they're usually popular kids and they pick on the less popular kids. Like the very, the bottom of the totem pole, the top Mm -hmm. of the totem pole picks on the bottom of the totem pole. But with female bullies, it looks very different. It's often within friend networks. So it might be a popular girl who's picking on another popular girl, you know, or like a well-liked girl. Oh yeah, no. And it's reputational damage. Right. Yeah. It's it's not fighting with fists. It's fighting with reputational damage. Right, right. But it's also, it's 
not ha- it's not yeah. happening at you know opposite rungs of the social ladder. The aggression is not taking place you know uh, from a popular right. girl to an unpopular girl as often. Um, it's it's right. the the worst aggression is saved for someone within your friend group at the same level as you um, who threatens you for some reason or your relationship falls out for some reason. So it's it's one of those things like when you're you know um, I've like taken like courses or whatever about bullying and. It, were they required? You mean like in high school when no, you were no, growing I took, up part of the anti-bullying movement? You didn't have to take bullying like health class. No, I took a bunch of I took a bunch of workshops and stuff like for uh just understanding like the various victims and how they, you know, whatever. But really? um, not for not in not in school, like for work. Like for, mm. you know, like I took a lot of domestic violence courses just to like understand what a victim looks like, how does how does this thing kind of happen? Um but in any case, there was at some point there was a uh, little bit on, on bullying um but with girl bullies it's sometimes it's hard for, for you to recognize a victim because she doesn't look like a victim because she's otherwise she has good grades well liked good looking mm-hmm. oh, and like suddenly for reasons no one can always no one can understand there's some kind of fissure between her and one girl or many other girls and now she's being ostracized in a very in, in a way that's invisible to outsiders to parents and to teachers so it can be really devastating and um, really, really, you know, scarring to the young girl, but like boy bullying, it's like, he's literally beating, <laughs> he's literally beating the other. And I wonder if you're has be- boy bullying receded, the, the anti-bullying movement really did cut down on the schoolyard fighting yeah. and all that kind of old school, literal violence mm. that we saw, but it certainly didn't do anything to stop girls stabbing each other in the back on social media. If anything, it exacerbated it. I bet it heightened it. I bet it heightened it. I bet it's harder to be a young girl right now in school when it comes to aggression that you're facing from your own sex. Right. Although, okay, but what about, I mean, boys do share photos. They will do reputational damage to girls by sharing nude photos of them or whatever it is, stuff like that. I mean, that can be, that's, devastating. I don't think that's, I, I can't imagine that's so common. Like I can't imagine people are doing it all the I time. I think I've been hearing that it is. Really? So, so um, yeah, parents, I know. I mean, I, I was kids like in high school, apparently that does happen more than you'd think. Hmm. I think yeah. you should just teach your kid not to be stupid and give a picture out. I know. Well, that's, I know. The mind stupidest blowing. thing. Like, I, I don't even, I, I always think they don't think anything of it. I mean, I always had a, I had a, I had a, an iPhone in high school. I, I didn't, I wouldn't never have thought, I, I, I don't would think never. I never, like in my time, if you were going to like take a nude selfie, you'd have to have your like little like Kodak like little camera and you'd have to like try to like figure out how to angle it. And then you'd have your film in there and then you'd have to take the film to the film processing place and wait. And, you know, they would actually like go through they would see all your photos. oh my god then you can't take them of course you can't take them like that then if they see all no that's horrible no oh yeah no we didn't that's why we didn't do that Hmm. there's so many reasons that i'm so glad to be as old as i am Hmm. so many yeah i just i think Um, even if i was around like even if i was young today i just feel like that's such a stupid thing and i would not do but I can see how people feel pressured into doing it. I don't, I can't imagine. People get it. I mean, adults do it. They probably get drunk and they're texting and they do it all the Mm -hmm. time. Adults do do it still all the time. Older people. Yeah, it's, I, Hmm. I wouldn't. All right. Well, I would highly recommend this piece by Christine Emba. It's very comprehensive. Does it answer the question though? Would it, in your uh, view, does it answer what's really happening 
to these young guys? Does it really grapple with the problem? Uh, no, but it lays it out. It lays it out almost reads like okay. a book proposal. I, sus- I have a feeling this is a book proposal. There's a lot of reporting. She talks about Jordan Peterson. She talks about how all this kind of reaction on the right is not helping matters. Mm-hmm. Again, this is one of these things that's been hobbled by the perception of a left-right divide. Mm. There's nothing political about the fact that these guys are falling behind. There should not be. Um, but of course it's become that way. So yeah, I would, uh, recommend this piece. It's just like a very good kind of summation Mm -hmm. of this whole landscape. It's very funny though, because it's a very long piece and the Washington post sort of as interstitials, they have little, you know, links to other stories. Mm. Um, and so right in the middle of, uh, Christine Emba talking about Jordan Peterson. There's a, you know, a link. You can click on another story. How to stop bullies who insist on enforcing the gender binary. And um, yeah. And then uh, the real manhood crisis is conservatives whining about manhood. What? So the, the Washington Post does not want you to forget that they have run stories that are not as... Uh, not like this. this I just... Uh... Yeah. But I do wish that men would step up and start talking about this. So... Yeah. I don't, so yeah. The thing is, it's not... It may be from from what I'm understanding of the problem. It I don't know if there is a solution. I think this is what modernity is doing to manhood, and the the problem is big. And talking about it is not sufficient because we have to also be willing to give up things that we are simply not we're not going to give up, and for good reason. And I wouldn't recommend giving them up. But I think well, that young men are. I mean, the concept of manhood has disappeared because the concept of a man as a provider with his specific role has disappeared. You're not going to get that back tomorrow, you know, and no amount of talking about it is going to get it back tomorrow or the kind of changes that we might need to actually, we might, what might actually help. Um, I mean, even in the Richard Reeves book, I remember there was all this stuff about boys doing better with with a male teacher and mm-hmm. in co- single sex spaces but then he's like but but also I, i'm not advocate like you know he was very very like no look, yeah, look well look. actually one of the things in this christine emba piece is she talks to richard reeves and he says you know i really um went very light on some of these things because basically he felt that he wasn't um in a position to really drill down hard. And I think now that the book is out, what does that mean in a position? Well, I think he just, he thought that he, he did, he was very mindful of not coming across like an, as, okay. in, yeah. as insufficiently feminist. Mm. And so there was, I mean, I had him on, on my podcast and he, you know, that was clear very, though through his book. He's right. It was, right. I, I always felt like, I, I mean, I reading it was kind of a interesting, but also sometimes a frustrating experience because it was like, you're not taking the next step. You're, Highlighting the problem, discussing the problem, right. not going there. But he has started, he does okay. have an initiative and he is, I think, um, taking it he on. has concrete, he has actual suggestions. And I think the red shirting thing um, is potentially useful, mm-hmm. holding boys back mm-hmm. a year or so, mm-hmm. or just even a year, having just them start year. school mm-hmm. a year later. I think that, I think that would work well, although I can see a lot of like hyper achieving families saying, no, 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 my son is such a genius. He needs no, to actually the, No, actually, the, the hyper, hyper uh, achieving families are already doing this mm-hmm. for different reasons. They're doing it because if they hold their kids back, their kids are smarter and they're also, uh, they're more competitive uh, in terms of sports. Like they're just more competent. Uh, yeah. Well, it's always gone on in sports. Yeah. yeah it's, so I know that it is, it's interesting how that's changing because I feel like in my time, uh, the hallmark of a family that thought their kid was gifted was that they would start them early. Yeah. The, those kids were young and it, it did them no favors. Mm-hmm. I, uh, mean, I can assure you. Yeah, but there's nothing um, to do with yeah. 
gifted kids, though. Every solution is a bad one um, or a politically unfeasible one. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I think maybe it makes sense to have like a, a, a wide variety of educational options available, you know, like with like we're getting on a tangent if we go too far this route, but with gifted education, you know, and separating out kids who are different, think different, you know, need to be amongst each other or are uh, better off socially if they're amongst each other. And maybe there are boys who are, um, they will, they will thrive in a single sex environment. But I think that imagine if we had a lot more evidence that boys are thriving in a single sex environment, but then we also had evidence that girls don't thrive in a single sex environment. I think we would choose girls. You know what I mean? Like, well, they do thrive in a single sex environment. Though, they do. So, yeah, so we're then, safe. then why yeah. are we doing it? Then let's yeah. just do well, it. Well, because that's the gender binary. Mm. Yeah, I think that ship has sailed. Do you think that girl schools are no longer interesting to people anymore? Like girls only? No, I think that girls high schools are interesting to people. Although the problem is, is that they tend to be elites. Mm. And so then you get, I mean, that's just eating disorder central. Oh, right. I would have hated you get it. These oh my rich God. girls. Yeah. If I had to go to a girls um, only high school, I would have blown my brains out. There's no way. Well, you, just, you hate girls. I, would have, you hate I don't, women. I don't hate girls. I just can't, I can't be around groups of girls. It's like, it's, it's the social circles that are impossible for me. My best friendships with girls are just like, one-on-one like me and this other person mm-hmm. and there is no other social group there is no connected group you know that can affect our yeah. relationship and impute its own kind of social dynamics and i think that's the healthiest kinds of relationships yeah. no i'm like i'm actually like that too believe it or not no i believe even I though i've even that. though i've started my, the the unspeakeasy is a women's community for oh. women who hate other women okay oh, okay it is okay. that's what yael decided yael bartour came and she said i'm coming even though i hate women and I said, this is the place for you. Okay. Because so does everybody else here. Right. I think well, there so. are women I can, I can get along really well with, but it tends to be, yeah, it's a unique, small segment of the population and you can't, it's hard to, how do you find out that, that they're that person? Are they going to just tell you, I hate other girls, you know, they're they avoiding you because I you're know. a girl and you're avoiding them because they're it. a girl and then nobody, you know, you don't, you don't have these beautiful friendships yeah. that are possible, I suppose. But yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of girls, we're going to talk about ballet and the bonus. Oh yeah. We're talk about men and ballet. Men and ballet. Diversity yeah. in ballet. Well, ballet is very racist and sexist. Well, and yeah. All kinds well, of things. And we'll find out. We'll talk about this in the. Definitely. In the um, okay. Okay. To listen to it, subscribe, a special place that's upsec.com. Um, and then you can be a part of that conversation too, or listen in, I guess. And then talk, talk to yourself or leave a com leave yeah. comments and we'll, we'll read Sarah them. Sarah wouldn't know anything about talking to herself. I wouldn't know anything about that. Record an internal monologue and send it to Sarah so she can like implant it in her mind. Yeah. Um, don't do that. I won't read it. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very frightening. Don't, don't do that. Um, okay. and then also we would like some, we would like uh, your questions for our advice column and I guess they can submit them what they can comment anywhere and we'll pick it up, but we're going to pay special attention to our subscribers. Yeah. Um, can they email us at our, at our email? Address? I guess. Do we have an email address? Maybe. Yeah. If we do have one, we'll, we'll link to it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I know we do, but I'm not, I'm, okay. I'm going to get it slightly wrong. Yeah. So I, okay. All right. But just, yeah, leave us, leave us your questions and we'll, we'll get, get right to it. Okay. All right. Thanks. Everyone. All right. Bye. Thanks. 